Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but our show is not a show about real estate. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program celebrating New York, its history, texture, its vibe, sometimes its culture, and its uniqueness. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life for you. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight's, we showcase an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or who had some interesting history here in the city. We've looked at the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement, the history of different immigration communities, including, sorry, immigrant communities, including people who were brought here enslaved. We've looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've looked at bicycles and cycling. They've been here for 200 years. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. They haven't been here for 200 years, but they have been part of our fabric nevertheless. Our public library systems, subway, public art, our greatest train stations, and even some of our bridges, to name a few. Yes, New York has great bridges, among many other things. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and other services. Tonight is sort of uh, uh, an extension of a show that my guest and I did uh, about a month ago. We called it Hardcover New York, New York Between Hardcovers, uh, how authors depicted New York in fiction. On the last show, we were going to talk about a whole bunch of authors. We talked about F. Scott Fitzgerald and E.B. White and also Joseph Mitchell. And we didn't have time for another shade of New York Between Hardcovers which was actually how children are depicted in fiction in New York. And I am pleased to welcome my solo guest tonight and the show's special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding, and his clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Mason Art New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David has many, many published works, and his latest blog is called Every Building on Fifth. As you can tell by the title, it documents every single building on Fifth Avenue, from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. And right at that juncture, you can see the Harlem Armory, which is an amazing Art Deco uh, construction. David's writing has also appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David Griffin, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Hey, Jeff. It's good to be here. (laughs) Virtually. uh, Yes, virtually. Well, hopefully we'll get to do it face-to-face again sometime. We still have that uh, dinner at Gage and Tolna that we've been talking about doing for months and months now ever since they reopened in the springtime, who, by the way, were guests on our show about downtown Brooklyn. And you were uh, one of the guests on that show as well. I forgot the number of it, but it uh, was actually March of last year. Um, David, I'd like to ask all my guests uh, how they got into what they do and specifically um, how you got into your business of showcasing New York, showcasing its architecture and using very wonderful things about the city uh, in your in your business and in your in your professional work, well, I um, had a mother who uh, was very interested in the arts. So I still have her; she's still very interested in the arts. And uh, whenever we would do a family trip, she would create a diorama of the city or the place we were going to go. So as kids, I feel we were taught to learn to look at things and observe them for what they were. And uh, as we grew older, my siblings and I became the uh, first sort of child interpreters for a New York State historic site, Old Bethpage Village Restoration, which is a a quite remarkable site out in Nassau County. And what we would do is we would uh, dress up in costumes from the 1850s, and we would participate in this historic village that had been recreated and uh, just sort of demonstrate the toys and the pastimes of that era. 
And uh, we had a chance sometimes to actually stay over in some of the houses that were preserved there. And I think I became very interested in the idea of the historic fabric of New York in general, New York State, America, if you will, and how those pieces were sort of like puzzle pieces that put together to fill out the story, the, the history of the people that lived there. So as I grew older, I you know, became interested in architecture as an art form. And I began to you know, think of ways that I could provide services whereby writing about the histories of buildings would help bring them alive for you know, both their owners, uh, for realtors, for tenants, for people who wish to acquire them, and make people understand that you know, real estate is not just something on a blueprint. It's an actual environment, and you know, people live and work there, and some of them did some rather incredible things. So uh, that's sort of the chain of um, response and activity, if you will. You studied art history at Vassar and also studied um, some architectural history, but you also have something very special in your background, which uh, uh, sort of brings us to the topic at hand tonight, which is that you also studied English and you studied fiction. Yes. Uh, and you put together this great program for us. Um, did you actually uh, study any of the authors we're going to talk about tonight when, when you were at Vassar, our alma mater? Uh, no, actually. Uh, Kay Thompson is someone that I was introduced to by my mother, who was familiar with the books. And um, the thing that really drew me to those books was less, perhaps, Kay Thompson's contribution, although it's, they're remarkable books, uh, but Hillary Knight's illustrations. I think Hillary Knight is one of those sort of unknown figures in American art. He's mostly illustration and set design as opposed to painting per se. And I think that the people who know those worlds know his work and they really, really admire it. But it's surprising to me how many people, you know, sort of know what he's done without necessarily knowing who he is. And Hillary Knight was interesting to me because I, when I was a kid, I was given a subscription to a magazine called Cricket, the magazine for children. And I loved it. I, I, I still think that that is a, just an invaluable kind of reading and learning tool for children in that particular magazine. And Hillary Knight did a great many of the covers on that magazine when I was a kid. And I always looked forward to seeing those works. I didn't know when they were coming, so it was always a, a surprise. But it was like, oh, this is that wonderful artist that does these things. And, um, you know, there were definitely other artists in Cricket Stable that were, you know, just as marvelous, just as magical. But Hillary Knight just sort of had this kind of amazingly expressionistic quality to what he did um, that really, I think, you know, his pictures have a lot of snap to them. They, they're, they're sort of ebullient. They bounce about a bit on the paper. And um, I think it's, it's, along with Kate Thompson's words, Hillary Knight's images really drive the magic of, of Eloise and, and tell her story. Well, we, we mentioned the first time, the first book, which depicts a child in New York that we're going to talk about. Kay Thompson is the author and Hillary Knight is the, is the illustrator. Let's talk about the author first. Who was Kay Thompson? Um, well, Kay Thompson was... And by the way, Eloise, for those of you who are Eloise, Eloise is, is a quintessential New York book taking place at a quintessential New York uh, uh, institution called the Plaza, which we'll talk about in a minute. But David, who was Kay Thompson? Well, Kay Thompson was a very interesting person. She had a very multifaceted career. She was something of a socialite. Um, she had a, a long career in music before she wrote the Eloise books. And she was, uh, was perhaps best known to people sort of viewing her as a, uh, the role that she had in a film called Funny Face, uh, which I believe was 1957, Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn. Um, it's a very charming movie. And she plays an extremely eccentric fashion magazine editor and sort of sings this song called Think Pink, which is sort of a, a pan to kind of the feminine influence in fashion. Um, at MGM Studios in the 1940s, she was a vocal coach for stars like Frank Sinatra and Lena Horne. So she worked with some major talent. And she also had a hit cabaret act with um, her musical, musical siblings, the Williams Brothers. She was just one of these very dynamic people in a way, but she was also very, she was very self-possessed and very, uh, I think, private in a sense. So she had this kind of interesting balance of being very, you know, very sort of um, vivacious, but also, you know, really kind of being 
herself. There was a secret part to her. And I think that's something provided her with a lot of her frequency, made people interested in her. Um, so yeah, that's, that's Kay Thompson, the, the nutshell version. Well, for those of our listeners who uh, uh, don't know a lot about Eloise, uh, let's talk about Eloise. Who was Eloise? What did she do? What, how was she depicted? What's her, what's her life like? Well, Eloise is, of course, the six-year-old girl who lives at the hotel, the Plaza Hotel, with her nanny, her dog, Weenie, and her turtle, Skipper D. So uh, she is a, a, a sort of a satirical figure, much more so than I think people assume. Um, she speaks in a very kind of affected way, like, you know, it's roll the nice to take a bowl. So she has this transatlantic accent she's always sort of diving about in. And, um, you know, she's, she's sort of a, she's an imp without meaning to be. And what she actually is is something that I think is a little bit poignant and something that, you know, Kay Thompson did purposely put into the story and then was surprised that so many people sort of misread it, is that in some ways she's, she's rather a neglected child. You never really do see the parents. You know, the nanny is always, you know, six steps behind her because she's always off doing some other thing. And she's trying to, you know, create a world for herself in a world which has already been created. The Plaza Hotel is pretty creative, you know what I mean? a lot of breakable things, let's just put it that way. So <laughs> Kay Thompson sort of sets this little whirlwind demon in the midst of all this, you know, expensive and fashionable bric-a-brac. And, you know, what occurs is what you normally think would occur. But, you know, it, it's something that I think it reads as if you think it's a children's book. And when you really look at it, you realize that, uh, you know, Kay Thompson had a very lonely childhood. She was very hurt by that. And I think she is trying to show a little bit of what that was like for her um evidently it's not a children's book you know it's just you raised that point david it's not a children's book when i was young and my mother bought me a copy of eloise you know i thought it was like a children's book but uh you know like eloise i suppose is a children's book like uh uh, the the television series Batman was uh, a children's you know yes, crime exactly. show, was it? It was it was a, it was a parody. It was a spoof with a lot of adult uh, uh, innuendo. Sort of a, com- a comedy of manners, if you will. And um, you know the the thing that was interesting for me about reading about this was that um, Eloise herself was a kind of a fictive component of Kay Thompson. There was a, a moment where Kay Thompson was coming in for rehearsals with the Williams Brothers for the cabaret act that she did. And they were so angry with her because she came in so late one time. <laughs> and as they were like kind of, you know, screaming their heads off at her, she all of a sudden said in this creepy little child's voice, I am Eloise and I am six. And they both stopped and it kind of diffused the situation. And she evidently had been performing Eloise sort of for her friends as like this little imaginary creature and may actually have been based on an imaginary friend or sister or companion that she had kind of come up with for herself while she was Eloise's age. So, and that's uh, one reason why she was very adamant that Eloise would always be six years old, would always live at the plaza. You'd never see the parents. And, you know, so you realize in some ways she, she is imaginary. She's not supposed to. Mm. And maybe also that, you know, we talk about uh, uh, children depicted in fiction uh, maybe there was something also uh, to a lot of people about New York that's imaginary, that's not real. Yes, and So exactly. Eloise is kind of the quintessential kid who fits into, you know, an imaginary child at the grandest of hotels. Well, I, you know, if, you, if, yep. you're, if you're a Waldorf fan, it, you know, it's not the grandest, but uh, uh, the grandest hotel living in this imaginary world in a city that to so many people who would have picked up that book is an mm-hmm. imaginary city. Um, right, Exactly. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin. Uh, This episode is called New York Between Hardcovers, specifically children, how children are depicted in fiction in New York City. We'll be back in a moment. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business, or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? 
I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. And you're back to Rediscovering New York. I even forgot what episode this is. I think it's 128 or 129, something like that. And it's entitled New York Between Hardcovers, specifically how children are depicted in New York City fiction or fiction about New York. My guest tonight is David Griffin. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. And he also is the special consultant for the show from the time we started way back when. Uh, David, um, what were some things that may have happened in Kate Thompson's life that might have helped her shape Eloise and that might have impacted the her vision for the book and and how the character showed up in everyday life well um, I've already sort of mentioned I think the way that she kind of brought Eloise out of herself as a way to diffuse situations and uh, again I do think that Eloise was very much a, a component of uh, her own recollections of being a rather lonely child um, you know, the sort of idea that Eloise herself is imaginary is, I think, part of the fictive conceit of the book. Uh, you know, there isn't really a little imp named Eloise, you know, running around the plaza, dumping water down the mail chutes, drinking champagne at the age of six, et cetera, and so forth. Um, there's one rather marvelous book, um, Eloise Takes a Boff. Um, there were, uh, it's one of four sequels to Eloise. There's Eloise and Eloise in Paris, Eloise at Christmas Time. Eloise in Moscow, and Eloise takes a bath. So that was the last one of the bunch. And in it, Eloise actually floods the entire Plaza Hotel during the Grand Venetian Ball. And um, I think it's sort of Kay Thompson's way of kind of setting Eloise free a little bit, perhaps, and being sort of like, all right, we. it's almost like a kind of a, a cartoon apocalypse, actually. It's a, the sort of thing that you think Dr. Seuss would have done with you know, something called flubber blubber or something or other, because the bath runs out all over the entire hotel, leaks spring everywhere, everyone gets kind of rained on, and the Venetian ball is flooded, and everybody loves it, because, hey, it's a Venetian theme. So, um, you know, at the end of it, uh, Nanny writes a check, as she always does, and that's the end of the story, because uh, in a way, it's it's something that I feel Kate Thompson is going to her signature to it and saying, you know, this is Eloise. That's that's it. That's as far as it goes. So did Hillary Knight uh do the illustrations for all the Eloise books? Yes, he did. And um he sort of mentioned uh, in a uh, documentary about him, 2015. That's uh, me, Hillary, the man who drew Eloise. Uh, Lena Dunham was the director of that. So I mentioned that because the book was marketed as a children's book, the New York Times didn't review it um, because they didn't know what to do with it. Rather, rather it was marketed as an adult book. It looked like a children's book. Ultimately, though, it was a complete success. Um, Life magazine actually said of Eloise, the first book, quote, the most controversial literary heroine of the year. She charms and terrifies like a snake, uh, which gives you some idea of, I think, the kind of undercurrent of you know the way that Kate Thompson 
pictured this person. Um, and Knight said, you know, Kay told him, according to Knight, this is not a children's book. It evolved. Uh, I don't know how it evolved to be the way it is, but it looks like a child's book. So children think that's what it is. And so they sort of made it into one. But yeah, as, as, as we've noted before, it's, it's very much kind of a black comedy in a sense. It's a, it's a spoof of what children's books are. And actually, um, interestingly, the New York Times didn't review it right away when it came out because they didn't know where to put it. What was it? <laughs> was right. it a work of fiction? Right. Was it a children's book? How do we, you know, what box do we put it? I suppose the editors uh, of the literary uh, sections of the Times were different back in the 50s than they are now. Today, well, it might not have been... Uh, might have taken so long to review it. I often wonder, I mean, I, I do wonder, since we're having the conversation, how Eloise would be marketed today. I mean, would it be seen as an adult book? Would it be seen as a children's book? Nowadays, the things like Harry Potter being so successful and other such titles, you know, for jumping from children into adult interests, I think adults are more willing to kind of share material with children. So I, maybe there's a little bit more kind of across the board marketing these days. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But I mean, I do think that there has been a trend where adults are sort of like, oh, I'm going to go see a superhero film, you know, and that's not like, what, what are you, 12 years old? You know, no, no, no. It's, you know, something adults do. And there are adult themes, there are adult emotions. There are some adult scenes. And, you know, maybe they keep out a lot of the adult language. But, you know, you go and see a Marvel universal, you know, Marvel picture, the Marvel Universe, you're not necessarily looking at something that's made for just children or just adults. It's, it's a very broad range. So I think Eloise might fall within that purview these days a little bit more. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Knight's illustrations. Um, Knight had created a famous portrait of Eloise that actually hung in the plaza for many, many years, an oil painting. Oh, that was nice. I remember that so well. Uh, you know, was when you came nice. in, I think it was on the right side near the near the front yes. desk. Yes. And someone made off with it about, I think about 15 years ago, they, someone stole it. And then it was missing for many years and someone found it in a trash can. Actually, whoever, whoever had stolen it just started it. And they took it back tonight and he restored the painting. But he decided he was going to, I think he kept that one for himself. He painted a copy, and that is the one that is now hanging in the Plaza Hotel. Mm. Believe you me, there's no way anyone is going to get that painted off the wall. Oh. <laughs> without there being a legitimate reason. So, mm. But yes, uh, Hillary and I did paint the current paint painting, but that's not the original version. It's a, it's a slightly more um, animated film-style version. I have an interesting recollection of Eloise when um, I was young. I don't remember how old I was. My mother, uh, I was born in 1960, and one of the fond memories I have uh, was New York in the 60s. When I was a boy, my mother took me around. She used to dress me up in knickers and take me all around, you know, Midtown, and, you know, New York in the 60s with all these new, this new gleaming architecture, you know, and we would go to the right. plaza. And for a while, I thought that it was, it, it was a historic event, that there really had been and a Eloise. little girl named Eloise. Yeah, yeah, like back at the time that it was built, you know, right before the First World War, it just had that feeling to it, right. hearing, about, hearing about her. Well, I mean, it, it's interesting that w the first one of these that we talked about um, was sort of the, you know, the Great Gatsby in the first half of segment, rather, of this uh, program on literature in New York. And, of course, in, in the Great Gatsby, um, they go to the plaza because that's what people did. You know, you went to the plaza. And even if you lived in New York, you went to the plaza because the plaza was the place where you did all the illicit things. You didn't really want to do it home because the neighbors would find out. So... Eloise is sort of, I think, also indicative of that strain of things. In some ways, she's not of that generation necessarily, but you could see her almost being related to those people somehow, that maybe she is Daisy Buchanan's granddaughter. Mm. And, you know, you don't see the parents because whoever Daisy Buchanan would have had as a daughter would have been just as superficial as she was. And so she dumps the kid with the nanny and is off, you know, living the jet set <laughs> life or something. But I think there's a continuance there, uh, the idea of the plaza as being a place that is, you know, where the elite meets, and you don't, you know. 
Uh, and I think, you know, going there as a child myself and seeing the plaza and, you know, having the, the, the famous tea at the plaza, et cetera, and so forth, it's sort of interesting how there are rooms around rooms around rooms in that hotel, and there are still secret places, you know, even the, the, the great public places lead on to places that we know that we don't see because we're not necessarily the guests. And then if you are a guest, you're only seeing your own room and you're not seeing the other guests' room. So uh, I think Kay Thompson really kind of plays with the idea that there could be an Eloise because there is a sort of element of a haunted house about the plaza, that there could be a presiding spirit in some way. And I think that's what she's, what she's after with this. Well, hopefully not the spirit of a past uh, manager and owner, but we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I wonder if there, if there was in any way a, I don't mean to throw you a trick question, but I don't know how, if there's an answer to this, but, you know, being a kid growing up in New York, I wonder if there, and it, it, it's not a children's book, but children, you know, it was given yeah, yeah, to children, yeah. they, they read, you know, by parents, they read it. I wonder if there was a different uh, perception or a different opinion about Eloise uh, for kids who grew up and lived in New York, as opposed to uh, children who were from more far, not, you know, the suburbs, but, you know, more far flung parts of, of the United States, or maybe the Midwest or from the South, if somehow um, uh, they held this, this little girl character in New York in a different way than what I did in amongst, you know, in, in people that, although I never talked to any other kids about Eloise, you know, right, uh, unlike yeah, yeah. other, other books that, that I read and was exposed to where you talk about things. Um, and talk about characters. I wonder if there was a difference between between an impression or about a response, you know, from from people living outside New York and people living in New York who read the book. Well, I mean, I think if you if you're living outside of New York, by which I mean, you know, as you do too, outside of its suburbs and its zone of immediate influence, and the idea you can just you know drive in and see it whenever. If you are really living, and and again, we're also talking about a different era when there wasn't the internet, when there wasn't you know sixty thousand movies being made every minute when, you know, New York itself was not necessarily accessible. You know, if you lived in Omaha, you didn't see New York because, you know, maybe saw it on TV or in the backdrop of a film, but you weren't going to, you know, go onto the internet and just push, you know, New York into Google Images and get 10,000 images of exactly what the place looked like. So I think Eloise is a fantasy of New York outside of New York, and in New York itself, she is more problematic uh, because she is uh, also a... Uh, very much, I think, something to do with the, the, the idea of class. And that's, you know, the invisible bubble that, that protects Eloise is the thing that also isolates her, and that's the fact that her family is supernaturally wealthy. They, these people have money. Uh, after she's flooded out the Venetian ball and practically destroyed the entire hotel, Nanny is able to write the check for the full amount of the damages done, and that's the end of it. And, you know, where's my rubber duck, you know? So... And he goes on living at the hotel. They go on living at the hotel and don't, don't hotel, get kicked out. As opposed to being like, all right, you know, pack your rubber duck and leave. Rich, we're done with you. you know? Crap, we can't be putting up with this nonsense forever. We're trying to run a business here, not a nursery school. So you you could probably answer that question better than than I, because I think I wasn't as aware of, I wasn't aware of Eloise as a kid. You know, I, I came to Eloise later on because I was interested in things like Hillary Knight and whatnot, I was sort of like, oh, this is really interesting with all this material. And in some ways, it was kind of odd to experience it and be like, this is an adult book. This is not kids stuff. It's just sort of written like it's a kid stuff thing. But I didn't have an idea of Eloise as a kid. I remember my mother mentioning Eloise at the plaza. And I'm like, okay, Eloise at the plaza, you know, who knows, whatever. I, I, I was sort of, you know, doing... I, re I read a lot when I was a kid, but I never did get to Eloise, even though, you know, as I said, Hillary Knight was one of my favorite illustrators back then. Um, so what were your thoughts? I mean, did you think, oh, you know, here's this little princess skipping along. How annoying. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I suppose I, you could have, but. I suppose even for a New Yorker who grew up um, kind of upper middle class-ish, um, mm -hmm. there was something always fascinating. You know, I remember, I, rem I, I have this vague memory you know uh -huh. um uh that there was the picture on the wall and my mother would have said something like oh that's eloise uh -huh. and my memory banks say i may have even asked we went up to you know someone working there said oh is eloise around you know right, and right. it was so uh, you know it was something that i don't want to say i aspired to but it was almost like magic it was almost like um a fairy tale you know here yeah. was this 
girl, this this young girl living amidst all this opulence. And you know, right, it was just right. like, oh wow. And and especially as you're walking around it and seeing it and you know, and, and the plush carpets and the smell and just the the grandeur and the and the and the luxury of the place. That's how, you know, mm. but that probably says more about my personality as a boy than it's, about anything else. It, it could go either way. I mean, you know, it's very cool. I love the plaza. I, I suppose if I really had sat down and thought about it as a kid, it would have been fascinating to think that there was somebody who actually lived there. Because, you know, you hear a plaza hotel and you think, oh, people come and they stay for a while and then they go. And you don't realize that there are people for whom it is convenient to live at a hotel because they don't want the kitchen. They don't want mm you know, to pay taxes on whatever it is. It's actually cheaper for them to just get a nice suite someplace, send up for room service and have everything taken care of. You know? Like Frank Lloyd Wright did, who lived at the Plaza. Yes. Um, we're going to take a break. We're uh, actually in the second half of the show. We're going to move to a, a girl of a little bit different socioeconomic uh, background than Eloise was, but not that far away, who didn't live that far away. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Rediscovering New York. We shall see you soon. Actually, in a minute. <laughs> Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Are you a cannabis enthusiast, a cannabis professional, or interested in entering the cannabis space? I'm Johnny Tsunami, and this is Planet Baco Lolo, a less taboo view. On our show, we will discuss the cannabis world through the perspective of various cannabis professionals. Tune in every Thursday evening, Eastern Standard Time, 6 p.m., Talk Radio NYC, Planet Baco Lolo, a less taboo view. Are you passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. We're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York on our episode, New York Between Hardcovers, specifically how some authors depict children in the city. My solo guest for this episode is David Griffin. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding, and he's also the special consultant for the entire program, all 120-something episodes of it. I'm going to look that number up before the end of the show and, and let people know what episode number this is, David. Um, let's talk about your business for a second. Um, what is it that inspires you to do what you do and to um, really depict wonderful things about buildings for, um, for people who are selling or, or renting out office space? You're muted, David. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, uh, basically, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of architecture. I'm fascinated by how buildings look, how buildings work, and how they're, they sort of look and work at the same time. 
um, you know, Lewis Sullivan called the skyscraper the machine that makes the land pay. And that's what these are. They, these are, you know, buildings that are erected for, you know, for commercial purposes. They're, they're erected for people to work in, to live in, whatever. And the way that they are designed, you know, sort of influences the response and the continued need for them, in a, in a sense. And I just find that fascinating. So um, to me, you know, Ludwig van der Rohe once said, God is in the details. And to me, it's always a great pleasure to take a walk around almost any New York City block, almost any, any single block, and just look for that detail because it's waiting there. You know, is it a little gargoyle? Is it, you know, some little kind of bit of stonework? Maybe it's just the way that, you know, certain corners of buildings operate or, you know, blinds are raised or not raised. Uh, all of this, it's just this kind of multiplicity of detail and it's woven very seamlessly into the fabric of the city. Um, I think more so perhaps than in other cities elsewhere around the world. I think that the New York grid really has created a kind of a dynamic aesthetic that is unique. So I extrapolate from this and, you know, create things like listings and websites and brochure copy, et cetera, and so forth, for realtors, for owners, uh, for developers, architects, for design studios. Uh, I do a lot of VIP event work or, you know, did pre-pandemic, still do a lot of online things. Uh, I've created a series of architectural lectures for the New York Adventure Club. Very happy to be working with them. They're a wonderful, wonderful organization. They do a lot of marvelous online content as well as, you know, actual tours once they get back to them. And um, I have been the proud co-host for many years with um, Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York to create the Room at the Top series, where we actually would go in and tour the lobbies and then the highest possible you know, available levels of skyscrapers and have receptions afterwards uh, and just kind of admire you know, the city and its skyline from a point in the skyline. So, um, yeah, Jennifer Wallace, her husband James Wallace, are the co-founders and owners of Mason Dark New York. Love to give them a shout out. Um, yeah, so, and they've been guests on the show before. We talked about public art, and they were on yes, the episode. Exactly, exactly. So, which we could we could do again. Actually, I'm sure there's more that we could kind of go over. But um, yeah, uh, so that's sort of the story of how I kind of began the business and why I did it and the types of things that I do. And you're updating your blog, Every Building on Fifth. I, I haven't done so recently because the pandemic, I think, has kind of created a, you know, there's obviously sort of a speed bump there. But I'm still being very cautious for, you know, various personal reasons. And I just am not sort of like willing to go into the city. And I'm, okay. I'm sorry. I thought you, I thought my, my bad. I thought you had, you know, made uh, uh, additions to it not too long ago. Um, oh no! I, we're we just yeah. Without getting into details, it's it's just not something I'm really willing to do right at the moment. Um, but yeah, so I'm hoping to do that though, and I do have because you know, a lot has changed up and down Fifth Avenue, and I want to be able to go back and kind of revisit buildings, see which ones have been demolished, which ones have been replaced, which ones have been renovated, which ones have been restored, which ones have been landmarked. Um, Fifth Avenue is an ever-changing tapestry, and. I don't think we'd want it any other way. And, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm eager to get back to it, but I haven't begun those additions yet. I, I do remember saying that I was going to. Just well, and, I, and another thing my mother always told me, she said, New York will be a beautiful city if they ever finish building it. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it goes on forever. Anyway, let's move across town a little bit uh, from the plaza over to the east side and up a little bit. Um, for a very, very different kind of, of young girl uh, who was depicted in fiction. Uh, who was the author, Louise Fitzhugh? Who was she? What did she, what did she do? Well, she was a very remarkable woman. She was uh, primarily in, earlier in her career an illustrator. And she came first, I think, to public attention as the illustrator of a, a children's book in 1961 called Suzuki Bean, which was a parody of Eloise. Um, Eloise lives up at the plaza, but Suzuki Peen was the daughter of beatnik parents, so she slept on a mattress on the floor of a Bleecker Street pad in Greenwich Village. And, you know, nowadays, we'd be like, oh, a Bleecker Street pad in Greenwich Village? Oh, you must be rich. And it's sort of like, that's <laughs> the way it worked in 1961. So, um, 
since you worked very closely with the author, whose name was Sandra Escarpatone, which I think is a marvelous name, actually, it's just wonderful, to produce Suzuki Bean, uh, which incorporated a typewriter font, one of the first children's books to do so. And again, is this really a children's book? It was sort of a borderline thing, because already this is a parody of something that was already not quite a children's book. And um, although both a parody of Eloise and the Beatnik Conceit, um, the book really kind of is treated as a genuine work of literature. I think it's very much appreciated. And although it's a, a book that I think is not widely known, um, it is much sought after on used book websites. So um, I actually have an order in for a copy myself. I, I, my interest is piqued by this. Um, so Fitzhugh was a very talented illustrator and she had a very distinctive style, which really, gave her work, I think, a poignancy that fell outside of a lot of children's book illustration and that a lot of the drawings look as if somehow a child had done them. They're done with a, a very, you know, incredible depth of detail, but the detail is the detail a child would notice. It's not quite caricature. Um, sometimes the drawn figures are, you know, they're drawn a bit out of proportion. Um, there's something about them that suggests woodcut work illustration and she illustrated her own work she illustrated Harriet's spy and I think her drawings of Harriet in some way are almost as inseparable from the text as the drawings that um uh John Tenniel uh created for Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland uh Tenniel is equally Alice and Fitzhugh granted this is her own book um, the drawings are equally Harriet. I can't imagine Harriet the Spy not illustrated by Louise Fitzhugh. And the funny thing is, is that when I was a kid and I first read this book, I thought these are the ugliest illustrations I've ever seen. You know, what the hell? Uh, I mean, because they're not pretty. They're not, they're not fun to look at. They're, they're angry in a way. They're, the, they're like the drawings that a child would make when she was upset. And, you know, Harriet the Spy, the titular character um, becomes very upset during the course of this book. And it's, it really is a very stunning look into, um, as I remember one noted children's book uh, historian saying, it might be the first children's book to really uh, address, however obliquely, mental illness. Mm. That these people are not well um, and that things are not going well for them because of that. And, Harriet being a child doesn't have the capacity to understand quite what's happening. Um, she's very intelligent, but she still doesn't have a vocabulary for what's happening. And she walls herself off a bit. There's, a, there's sort of a hint, I think, somehow that she's, she's not a sociopath, but she is lacking a certain amount of empathy. And it's not because she doesn't want it. It's just some switch has not yet gone on. She's a late bloomer in that sense. So when she observes people, she does so very cruelly. And she writes all of her findings down in her books because she wants to be a spy, and this is what spies do. They watch people and then they write down what they think. And what she writes down is, you know, it's not flattering. It's her own thoughts of the moment. So for those unfamiliar with the book, let's just say when her classmates find her notebook, it doesn't go particularly well because it's not like she put into her notebook all the wonderful things about them. She put down all the things about them that she thought were odd or stupid or didn't make sense or were ugly or flagrant or grotesque. And they respond the way that children would. I mean, it's like, you know, I've just found he's been writing all this nasty graffiti about me, except it was only in a book for her own amusement. So in a way, it's a very disturbing book to encounter. And I, I read it, you know, at a fairly early age. But I remember thinking, I thought to myself, something is going on here that I just can't understand. I, I'll know I'll understand it when I get older. Because I knew, again, that there was this like concept of something mentally wrong with some of these people. But I didn't know what that was. You know? and I think I had, I had begun perhaps to observe it at that age. I met people who had had some kind of a you know, mental trauma. But and never in the context of a children's book. Hmm. Um, David, we're going to take a short break. I do want to continue this uh, uh, topic with you and uh, talk about Harriet the Spy. Uh, we're going to be back in a moment. Uh, you're listening to Rediscovering New York on talkradio.nyc. Hmm. 
everybody. It's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Do you feel uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbaro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Wow, I have gotten so much into the content of this, David, that halfway through the show, I forgot to mention our sponsors, which I will do now. Support from the program comes from these important businesses. Sharag Modi, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, for assistance in any kind of residential mortgage. Sharag can be reached at 718-210-1167. And support also comes from Jacqueline Hosford Interior Design, specializing in residential and commercial renovation and decorating. Jacqueline can be reached at 347-482-1700. David, uh, was there something about Fitzhugh's life that may have impacted how she depicted her subjects, both in Suzuki Bean and Harriet the Spy, do you think? Well, she was um, a lesbian, and she was very open about it in a time when, obviously, this was not considered normal or acceptable by many people. And Harry the Spy was written, was published in, in 64, was it the early 60s? 1964. Um, and, you know, the, the book did appear on the list, 1964 list of the year's best juveniles in the New York Times book review. 1965, there was a critic who called it a brilliantly written and unsparingly realistic story, a superb portrait of an extraordinary child. Uh, another reviewer found that, quote, it captures the feelings, thoughts, and situations of a modern city child, with a remarkable clarity and dimension. Um, none of these reviews ever addressed the concept of Harriet's potential sexuality. And of course, you know, she's too young to really, you know, perhaps possess that thing in terms of, of uh, you know, consciously knowing what it is. But it was really sort of remarkable that she is always depicted in boys' clothes. That was very, very rare back in that time period. And she is never, you know, shown as particularly hankering after dresses and things of that nature. That doesn't interest her. And so in some ways, I think, you know, I don't think Fitzhugh is trying to say anything about Harriet. But I think she's also remembering what she herself may have been like at that age. And she put a remarkable amount of that into into Harriet. And I think the book has been, in some ways, kind of a, a, a sort of seen as a a landmark for the, you know, gay, bi, lesbian, trans community because Harriet is an outsider in some sense, um, and she does not conform to gender norms. You know, whatever her own sexuality turns out to be, she's not interested in acting in the feminine role. Um, there's also another character in the book, Sport, who is uh, Harriet's closest male friend, and it's interesting that you know, again, Louise actually gives Sport a lot of the feminine traits that Harriet does not possess. He cooks, he cleans, he's, he's sort of a warrior. He's a very 
you know, mothering type. He's very sensitive. He's quite emotional. Um, he cries several times in the book. Uh, he's physically depicted as being somewhat fragile. And uh, in some sense, you know, again, I don't think Louise uh, Fitzhugh wants to, you know, brought up a, a rainbow flag over the character necessarily. That's not, that's not her purpose. But she is suggesting that gender itself might be something that's fluid and knocked about and doesn't need to be sorted out so early. So um, I think that a lot of children's clothing, and we've forgotten this in the modern world, but a lot of children's clothing prior to, let's say, the 1970s was extraordinarily gender specific. You know, girls wore dresses, boys wore, you know, little pants, and then they wore, you know, big pants or whatever. And that's kind of gone away. But Louise was there to witness those years when it was still there, and her characters are not playing that game. So it's a, it's a, a very interesting kind of um, crossover, I think, from her own identity. Do you think there's something about Harriet the Spy that is really about New York and emblematic of New York? Or yes. is it a story that could take place anywhere in the country? No, no, because in New York... The thing about Harriet's world is that it's, it's actually quite specific. She's on the Upper East Side. She's in an actual location. Most of the places and things that she goes to are based on things that are observably there. But the thing about it is that she's what she's doing in the course of the book is she's going into people's, you know, dumb waiters and into the alleyways and behind the backs of things. She's listening in on conversations. And you can't do that in a small town someplace without someone noticing. And you couldn't do it that easily in most places. The thing is that New York to her has a kind of impersonality about it. And because of its impersonal nature, she has been lulled to the thing that the people who move through this world, maybe they don't really matter. Maybe they're just things to be observed. I think that's a very New York thing to think. I think, you know, you do feel it in some of the other really major cities of the world, I'm sure. But in some sense, Harriet's world is a product of a certain type of alienation that people, I think, were experiencing during that time period in New York mm -hmm. City. Um, she's also dealing with issues of class that I think exist everywhere, but in New York, they're concentrated. In other words, there's a family that owns the delicatessen. There is the kind of teenager who just works for the delicatessen. There's the old guy who spends his entire time making bird cages for whatever he does and has 5,000 cats. There's the, you know, stuffy bourgeois couple that just sits alone and never talks about anything except what they buy. There's the, the wealthy kind of eccentric socialite who's lying in bed all day and, you know, she's 40 and she hasn't had a job a day in her life. These people are all recognizably New Yorkers, but the thing is, is that it's not just that they're urban types, they're close together. This is a novel about proximity. In other words, it, Harriet couldn't run from one end of the town to the other to witness all this stuff someplace else. In New York, she can see all of these different people within a few blocks because the, the most aristocratic apartment house in town still has a deli next door. And there's something very New York about it. One thing that comes to mind hearing you describe that is the film Rear Window, which you yes. know has pretty much all these different kinds of people except uh, the character that, that James Stewart plays could actually see them out his window and not hear them. So Harriet yes. listens to them and records them. And uh, yes. Uh, and and none, of, none of them murder each other or her, although you feel that they want to by the end of the book. <laughs> um, yeah, so she's, she's sort of, she's in an environment that is conducive to this. It's an environment that's helping her create this persona for herself. And in some ways, it's a very liberating environment. I mean, she is a, a very sophisticated child, as her friends are. Her friends are quite sophisticated. They're all intelligent. No one is presented in this book as being particularly dumb. Um, but it's not the fun world of Eloise. It's, it's something that's more damaging. And you, know, you have the feeling that if Harriet hadn't been given the cold bath of realizing that when you write down everything about your friends somewhere and leave it for them to, to read later, they're not going to like you very much at the end of the day. She could have very well turned into an incredibly cool person. Uh, you know, somebody who really did just judge everybody by what they happened to be wearing or eating or how they talked for the first few minutes that they were in her company. And we know that there are plenty of those people in New York because that's the way that people make decisions about things. 
Well, I'm not going to ask you how the book ends. Uh, I don't want to do a spoiler alert. Let people uh, read Harriet the Spy. Uh, it's a great in, book. The, in, in, in the minute or so we have left, how was the book received? It was received, I think, quite well. Um, there was a certain amount of controversy about it um, because many critics and many you know, teachers felt <coughs> the characters were far from admirable. But according to her New York Times obituary, which was published when she died at a fairly young age, uh, 1974, uh, quote, the book helped introduce a new realism to children's fiction and has been widely imitated. I mean, I think a lot of what we see that's good in children's literature uh, comes out, comes because of Harriet the Spy, because this is a, this mm. is a, a book that's not cute. Mm. Well, unlike Eloise and unlike Suzuki Bean, David, thank you so much for another wonderful episode and a wonderful journey, this time into fiction. Yes. Um, this episode, and it is 128, I checked it, it's uh, the second in our series of New York Between Hardcovers, how authors in fiction depict life in the city, this time through children. My guest has been David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is the show's special consultant, and he's the founder and CEO of his amazing company. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's on all three, or Jeff Goodman NYC. I wonder how I got that for all the mm-hmm. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chirag Modi, Mortgage Strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and Jacqueline Hosford, Interior Design. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sturrier. Our engineer this evening is Kyle McLeister. Uh, Our special consultant of the program, as you all know by now, is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Coffee Talk XL with my fellow host, Kevin Barbaro. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Innings. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Post-COVID world, you may have many unanswered questions regarding your health. Are you looking to live a healthier lifestyle? Do you have a desire to learn more about mental health and enhance your quality of life? Or do you just want to participate in self-understanding and awareness? I'm Frank R. Harrison, host of Frank About Health, and each Thursday, I will tackle these questions and work to enlighten you. Tune in every Thursday at 5 p.m. on talkradio.nyc, and I will be frank about health to advocate for all of us. McElroy, host of 
the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc.